before we start the, the uh, Q&A, I, I did remember something I forgot. Um, this has to do with uh, the occasions, Asbab al-Nazul, occasions for revelation for the ayat, Ya ayatuhu al-nafsu mutma'inna, irja'i, irja'i ila rabbiki radiyat al-mardiyya. The, um, the, this is the last part of the surah. Oh, you content soul, tranquil soul, return to your God and enter into my servants and enter into my Jannah. We have three different reports as to a possible occasion for revelation. One is that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq um, had a um, a well known as uh, Bi'r Rawma. It, it was a it no longer exists but it was a well that uh, was very rich uh, a, a, a wealthy water source which of course was uh, something that was highly valued in that culture because of the scarcity of water and Abu Bakr donated it to Ahl al-Sufa to the uh, indigent population um, and as the report says that then the ayah the verses the ayatu al-nafsul mutma'inna were revealed the second report says that this was revealed when the Prophet Salam's uncle Hamza was killed in the Battle of Uhud. That it was the occasion for revelation was the martyrhood of Hamza in the Battle of Uhud. The third report says that. Um, when um, Khubayb bin Adi, one of the companions, Khubayb bin Adi, was sent, there, there was a tribe that came to the Prophet ﷺ and pretended to have converted to, to Islam and asked that the that he sends with the with them a teacher to instruct them on Islam. So he sent with them Khubayb bin Adi. Uh, when they went a distance from Medina, uh, they crucified Khubayb and tortured him to death. And on the crucifix as Khubayb was dying, uh, he kept declaring his Iman, his Shahada. And the Mutma'inna was revealed on that occasion. The problem with all three reports is that whether it was about Bi'r and Abu Bakr, whether it was the martyrhood of Hamza or the martyrhood of Khubayb bin Adi and his tortuous death, is that all these events occurred in Medina. Well after Surat al-Fajr is supposed to have been revealed. 
So what is the likelihood? I, I believe that all three are historical events. I mean, Hamza was obviously martyred in battle Uhud. Abu Bakr did have a bit Roma that uh, he donated to the indigent. Uh, in fact, Abu Bakr donated everything he owned. Uh, he, he died with practically nothing. Um, and Khubayb uh, bin Adi was crucified uh, and killed. I think, and Allahu Alam, is that probably uh, these various occasions, uh, perhaps the Prophet recited Surah Al-Fajr, and that this was misremembered in the tradition as occasions for revelation. It's very unlikely that any of these were an occasion for the revelation, because we have plenty of evidence that this area already existed long before any of these events transpired. Um, so just for the sake of thoroughness, I thought I'd um, share it with you. The, the, the second general comment I want to say b before we go into the Q&A is that, um, SubhanAllah, I mean, th since we did Surah Al-Hadid and Surah Al-Jathiyah, um, there are so many situations where I can only describe it as a, as a calling that torments me. Um, I will hear someone, or not hear, I mean, in my case, read, unfortunately, or alhamdulillah, uh, I will read someone say something about um, Surat al-Dukhan, for instance, or um, um, Surat Maryam, or whatnot. And m literally my heart will, will skip a beat because I, I wish I, um, I could in uh, throw myself into that project. But inshallah, I, I really hope that we will be able to get that project off the ground and do the sur we, we so badly need to reconnect with the Quran at, at a personal at a personal level, we we need to understand what each surah is is how how each surah is speaking to us and delivering distinct message, and uh, we we can't um, keep dealing with the Quran in this sort of cut and paste style that we often do, of taking an ayah here and ayah there and because we, we just miss out on so much. Anyway, okay. Three seems to work. Three, okay, perfect. Okay, salamu alaikum. So we're going to start with the surah. Um, I don't have very many, but um, so Rami, um, question on a point of clarification. 
the cliffhanger from the last halakha was that there is a different way from assessing one's relationship with God by reference to worldly status. Is the other way done by measuring a society's proximity to the model of the prophet's community, taking care of orphans, poor, not usurping inheritance, not loving wealth? Yes, um, th that's where I left off in the in the last halakha. That uh, if you take the the unified message of the surah and the total message of the surah is that you have objective measurements are you a participant in a social project of Are you a participant in a social project of taking care of orphans? Um, in establishing a norm and institutional structure for taking care of the poor, uh, of safeguarding the rights of inheritance, because the, the type of inheritance that is most commonly stolen are the uh, inheritance that belongs to orphans uh, or the powerless. I mean, th that's the type that... Th there's another aspect that um, is rather interesting, and that is one of the, one of the big challenges of, um, of earlier societies, and perhaps even to our day, is the disinheriting of women. Um, there was a lot of resistance to giving, giving women their inheritance or allowing women to inherit. For in, in tribal societies and in traditional cultures, and a lot of the tafsir, by the way, make mention of the fact that when it says what um, they they referred to the problem of disinheriting women. Now, other than these large-scale objective measures, there is a, uh, a more personalized measure. And that is, in, in, the, is, is, uh, Quranic, uh, the, in the surah's reference to يَتَذَكَّرُ الْإِنسَانُ أَنَّ لَهُ الذِّكْرَ يَقُولُ يَا لَيْتَنِي قُدَّمْتُ لِحَيَاتِي there are several, I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah says it, Ghazali says it, um, I've read it in many different places, that an unwise person is a person who basically lives through life in a state of oblivion, uh, not thinking of missed opportunities. I, I wish that I have done something is a warning to people to think in terms of what they could have possibly done in Allah's service, in the service of the, the ethical goals that Allah puts for us, and that that becomes the true measure for um, worth in life, for whether your life is meaningful or not. So that, that's what I, 
wh where I was leading when I left off last time. So, um, next question. My question is related to when the professor said something along the lines of God doesn't answer the dua of an unjust society. Um, with this in mind, how do we understand the dua made by just and pious individuals in that society? Whether Allah answers the dua, one, I mean, always have the humility to understand that you don't know whether Allah answers your dua or not. We pray for things, but as Allah teaches us, you know, you could want something and in fact it would be utter evil for you. Um, so have that humility of always being cognizant of the fact that uh, ultimately you could think your dua has not been answered, but you don't really know. We really never know. That's one. Just that, that point of humility. But the second point. Uh, whether Allah answers a personalized dua of the pious in an unjust society, which is something that you know Muslim theologians have written a great deal about, uh, often... It, has to do with the way that your own personal life intersects with the life of others. So we know, for instance, that the dua of Ibrahim السلام, for his father was not answered. The dua of Nuh for his son was not answered. Uh, According to how you understand a lot of things, perhaps the dua of the Prophet Muhammad to his grandfather was not answered. I mean, that I put a lot of caveats on because it's a complicated issue. But the point is, is that sometimes, although you utter a personalized dua, in order for that dua to come true, the way things would align injustice would have to be given an upper hand and or the namus the the laws of morality would have to be altered and in that situation the way that allah rewards you for the, your da is that your reward is is reserved in the hereafter i mean take a very practical example uh, i mean it's a silly example but i think it it will get the point across let's say you're a pious person and you're doing dua that your child uh, is successful in life and you know gets a good job and so on and Allah in Allah's perfect knowledge knows that your kid is a loser and your kid doesn't do what warrants success now ultimately you don't get and Allah as, as a result doesn't answer your dua and doesn't come to the aid of your child it is possible that Allah would as a favor to you and many children were favored because of their parents that has happened a lot and will continue to happen a lot but it's 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 no guarantee it's nothing that you can 
what whatever Allah knows and Allah's perfect knowledge. But the the dua of a pious human being, if it is not answered on this earth, it is rewarded in the hereafter. To the extent, and that is one of the major differences between the dua of the impious and the pious. The impious, if their dua is not answered, it's simply a disappointment. It's a, it goes nowhere. The dua of the pious is either answered in this world or rewarded in the hereafter. This is a question on the occasion for revelation for verses 27 to 30 in Surah Al-Fajr. Is there any scholarly discussion that such verses could have been revealed multiple times? Would you please elaborate on how you feel about this possibility? No, the, the, uh, the thesis of uh, multiple revelations, I think, is, in my, in my view, is unsound. Um, well, I mean, first, by multiple times, do you, do you mean in the surah revealed in parts, or do you mean that the same surah revealed several times? Kamran, do you want to just, you can just say it if you want. Yes, uh, Jekyll, uh, was referring to, was referring uh, the, same to the same ayat being revealed, being revealed multiple, times. multiple times. Yeah. Uh, no, we, because once the ayah was revealed, we we know that the the Prophet would would recite it, and then Katabat al would actually write it down, and so it it was preserved. We do have many reports in which something would happen, and the Prophet would then recite a verse that has been revealed and from the studying of uh, the seerah and sunnah uh, I've noticed that there there sometimes arises a confusion in the traditions so some people would say and on this occasion the, the Prophet then recited and they would correctly note that this was already a, a ayah that was revealed in Mecca or that had already uh, been um, um, been in circulation for a period of time. But then you have, for instance, Abu Huraira would say, no, it was revealed on this occasion. You have to keep in mind that Abu Huraira was a later convert. So he was um, from the tribe of Bani Asad, uh, of, uh, he was an Asdi, he was from the tribe of Bani Asad, and uh, he converted in Medina, and probably in the sixth year or fifth year in Medina. So it is quite possible that a later convert would hear an ayah and think that they are, that this, that they're hearing it for, for the first time and it was be transmitted as such, but if you have to read all the reports, and when you read all the reports, you get a sense for, uh, you know, whether Ibn Abbas or Ibn Mas'ud or, or the, the others who are more reliable in transmitting 
the Quran or in reports about the Quran who tend to be more correct about occasions for revelations eventually with a long engagement with this literature you get a sense for which transmitters um, tend to be more dependable and reliable and and others less so not I mean the way history is transmitted people don't have to have, have don't have to have ill will for mistakes to happen the way history is preserved uh, human memory will often get things wrong and that is why it is critical to read everything that you can find about a particular topic before coming to a, um, a belief about whether it is this or that. So I, I don't think there would, there would be multiple situations where the same ayah would be revered, revealed. But uh, you do have situations where the Prophet ﷺ would recite an ayah and then it would be the first time that some companions heard it. Um, or it sometimes even would strike someone as the first time they've heard it. Okay, so this next question is actually from Sahar. She texted it to me, and I need you to read it because most of it is Arabic. <laughs> okay, so if you can read it out so that we have it on the f recording. Yeah. Can you see the question for the recording? Yeah. Um, well, the question is that normally when we use the verb form, idkhuli, enter, we normally talking about a location. So when you say, fatkhulil manzil, or enter the home, fatkhulil manzil, enter for a female, uh, um, uh, enter the home talking to a woman so the the question is are there any discussions about why does it use the instead of say in saying um uh, why does it say use the verb form enter to an inanimate uh, object like my servants instead of a location or a place um, and there there has been I mean if you if you look at the tafasir there's long discussions about that because of course the um, and there are some have said that no and they they, they recite various poems to to, to try to demonstrate that some said no this as a, a form of balagha a form of eloquence has been used by uh, pre-Quranic Arabs um, when as as a form of intimacy so that and they, they argue for instance that uh, that 
you can say use that verb form to say become part of my family and i don't remember the poem that they recite as uh, as an example of that but that as a form of eloquence when you want to say that this is going to be something very intimate as if they and they demonstrate this often by say when you say to someone enter my heart uh that you know obviously someone doesn't enter your heart but that it means become as if a part of me and that when allah was saying that allah was saying and this by the way for sufis becomes very important because they say this is evidence that in fact you attain that status of unity with the divine and become as if part of you 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 reach this level of utter communion uh so w- one school saw that say say that this is a balaghi form and as a form of balagha that it it connotes special intimacy and special proximity um the other major orientation that I, 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 you know, I'm not quite sure why didn't they accept that this could be a, just a form of balagha. But anyway, that say, no, it, it is an unusual usage and it is a usage uh, that is unique to the Quran and that when the Quran indicates that, that in fact, the, it must mean that it is referring to a special, special status in Jannah, an actual physical place that you enter that is of a higher level than the rest, that a nafsul mutma'inna doesn't just enter any Jannah, but enters a special location that has a special relationship with Allah and so they maintain the idea of location itself. And they, so, and they, they, they see as ultimately introducing the idea of that special Jannah or a special higher status of Jannah. So if you want to call it the location school of thought and the symbolic school of thought, um, I tend to to side with the second school. I uh, I, I think it is more symbolic and more balaghi, and I I don't think I mean it, it's we know expressions like fatkhul fi qalbi or dakhla qalbi, or even um, uh, one of the poems that was cited uh, refers to. And argues that it means they entered into the heart rather than the heart entered somewhere. Anyway, but that that's basically it. But a good question. Okay, so I think that's it. I think that's it for the one questions related to the surah. Um, but if you if anyone has more, feel free to submit more. Okay, so, Assalamu alaikum, God bless you and preserve you for us always. Thank you for a wonderful session. On the night that you delivered your findings on Surah al-Hadid, a dear friend of mine learned that his unborn child tragically passed away in his mother's womb at the eight, 
eight-month mark. Mm. Fortunately, his wife was able to deliver the baby a few days later, and we were able we were able to provide Russell for the child. My friend is a great admirer of yours, and I wondered whether you might do him and his wife a great kindness by offering a nasiha or a bit of advice regarding these circumstances. I know that they would be greatly appreciative. God protect and uplift you always. Remember that Allah tells us that nothing enters the womb without Allah's purposeful design. And you're talking about the eight months. The rawhillah is 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 in that child. That now we truly do not know what is Allah's blessing. And when I talk about blessing here, I'm talking about blessing to the child. Uh, a child that dies this young, the 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 good news is that they enter heaven without hisab. Any child that dies, they enter heaven without hisab. And the reports are cumulative, and in my view more than well established that for those that you, you are for those who seek the path of their Lord they're united with their loved ones in the hereafter that you will be with who you love and so a child that even if you lose a child that young If you are in Jannah, you will be reunited with that child. And that's the child that enters without hisab. So there isn't even the question of that child ending up in a place other than your own. What is hisab? Uh, accountability. Uh, without accountability. Without having to stand um, to account. So... always pray and this is my dua with so many of the people that I've lost in life I always pray Allahumma jma'ni bihum always pray that Allah you, you reunites you and of course that prayer is since you already know that your child is in Jannah then that prayer is that so you can be in a place where you would want to reunite with your child and then Remember that the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, it, it. one of the things, and I've said that in several khutbahs, because it, it really, when you study the life of the Prophet ﷺ and you see how many children died, and I often, uh, how many children he lost, and I often ask myself, any other man, any other human being who, you know, get, finally gets a boy, from Khadija, his beloved wife, and then he passes away, and then has another boy, and he passes away, and then right after the Battle of Badr, when he, you know, finally the first victory that Muslims achieves, and he goes back to Medina only to find that Ruqayya passed away. Uh, he, 
any lesser human being would have become convinced that God has it in for me and God keeps killing my children and the only child that survived was Fatima. Um, and even Fatima dies shortly after the Prophet ﷺ dies. And in fact, what, the, what we find that the Prophet's consolation to other companions who lost their children is always, may Allah gather you or may Allah put you together where it matters. And I know, I'm convinced that the reason that the Prophet ﷺ persevered with all these, and is that he knew that this is not the end. This is just simply a step towards reunion. That, that this world is a place we are, where we are tested. And when you lose a child, perseverance and patience in the loss of a child is one of the highest, I mean, for the, I have to say, I have to call it that, but it's one of the highest blessings because you, by persevering and by drawing closer to Allah, you are propelled to a higher level that people who never had a child and never lost a child will envy you for in the hereafter. And I truly mean that. I mean, when I think of so many people, uh, life has just shown, shown us a lot of tragedy. And I think of the hereafter. And when people think of their past life, and those who've enjoyed numerous fortunes in this life, how all these fortunes will look so insignificant in the hereafter and how envious they will be of those who in fact were beleaguered by misfortune and persevered. May, may Allah give you patience and may Allah reunite you with your child. Um, always pray for reunion and may Allah make this a step towards a higher status with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're in that class of people, very class, special class of people who Allah has tested with taking your child. And, and that's, um, that's a very high status. The next question is, um, in the recent halakha in Surah Jathia, the professor mentions about the moment we have to see the film of our life and how awesome in the literal sense that will be. Elsewhere in the Quran tells us that either we will be given the book from our right or our left hands. Could the Shaykh please expand on this? Does it mean that if we are granted grace um, by Allah, we will see the record of only our good deeds, but if we have not repented truly, we will be forced to watch the evil only for which we are responsible for? Many thanks. Yeah, we, we literally kept a copy of everything that you've done. Now, we don't know when, when the, the kitab is sometimes referred to in, in the Quran as kitabun marqum, uh, or 
and that kitab is often described as a blessing, as a source of blessing and tranquility, or a source of sijin, which is literally a a a fall, a, a heart sink, if you will, a, a kitab that makes your heart sink. Now, we draw imagery to try to understand an approximation of this, and even the reference of right hand and left hand. Um, you know, it, it, does that, is it a physical book or something that is a record of some other type? But what we all know, what we can all agree on about is that it is a record. And that that record is a meticulous record. It leaves nothing out. And that that record we will immediately, either because it is positioned in front of us or behind us, or positioned towards our right or positioned towards our left, or because of its very nature, whether it is heavy, it, it feels heavy in some way, or it feels light in some way, because elsewhere in the Quran also it refers to uh, the it's, it's some reference to its weight structure. Or whether, and elsewhere we are told that it is what we are going to be able to see. So it's a record that will produce, that will result in some a level of immediate consciousness. Now whether that consciousness passes through the eyes or passes through the self uh, as, you know, as um, I forgot where, where I read this. It might have been in Ahiyya Ulum al-Din, but I'm not, I'm not sure. That, um, you know, do you actually need the eyes and the ears and the nose to perceive that record or do you just perceive it immediately? And that record perceived immediately is either going to fill you with a sense of doom, a sense of anxiety, or a sense of peace. The, it, it's like when you enter a home that is cursed or blessed, it's nearly immediately. You might not know all the details yet. You might know, not know exactly what went wrong in this home, or you might not, or you might not know all the good, beautiful things that went in this home. But the sense of doom, anxiety, or bliss is immediate. The details will come later, but that sense of, you know, I'm lost, I, I'm really in trouble, or I'm anxious, I'm not sure where I'm going to end up, I better wait for my accounting because I'm actually, it's so close. I'm not sure whether I'm in trouble or whether Allah is going to forgive me and I'm going to pass. Or you're going to be among those fortunate ones that say, Alhamdulillah, this feels beautiful. This feels luminous. Allah describes those as al-muqarrabun, that you are going to be among the muqarrabun, the close ones. Now, if any wise human being any wise human being that takes the hereafter seriously would want not to be in the first category, but also not want to be in the second category. Uh, you know, you don't want to be among those who 
Did I make it? Did I not make it? Will Allah forgive? Will Allah forgive? You, you want that immediate sense of bliss that all the indicators are there that I'm fine. And those are the muqarrabun, the, the, the close ones. It's, you know, it's stated in the Quran as an aspiration. And I even believe, and there are, you know, in other parts of the Quran, Shalom, we talk about, because there several surah, um, in fact, tell us this explicitly, that even at the moment of death, even at the moment of death, you will realize whether you are among the muqarrabun or the else. Now, whether the else are the doomed or the else are the anxious, we don't need to get into how long la how lo how long that moment lasts or azab al-qabr or the, the whole hisab al-qabr or all that. That's a very big, these are very big issues. But at the moment of death, so for instance, I don't mind telling you that among the prayers that I say, Allahumma ga'ani min ha'ula alladhina idha tatwafahum al-mala'ika taqulu lahum salaman salama hasuna bikum mustaqarran wa muqama. Among the dua I repeat is Allah make me among those that when the angels receive my soul, the angels will say salam salam welcome you are safe because the alternative is terrifying the alternative are those that those who the angels of death will come receive their souls beating them striking their faces and striking the backs of their neck and that's terrifying that moment of death where you actually you re I mean, if the angels are receiving you at the moment of death harshly, you know you're in trouble. If they're receiving you with great tranquility, among the things that I never forget is my mother, with my mother, but also with other people that I've known, that when they died and we washed their bodies, or we, or I saw their bodies after their death. And there was a clear smile on their face. You know, when my mother passed away, we saw her body. She looked 20, 30 years younger. It was, it was one of the most striking things I can never forget. I mean, she died when she was uh, 81, but she looked like she was in her 40s the way i remember her when she was in her 40s and she didn't look that way and she looked that way after she when we saw her body after her the the, the she was prepared for burial and tahsil and kafan and so on and she was smiling but uh, there were also other people that you know that um so don't get lost in the mechanics, lose yourself in the ultimate point. The, the moment of death is a very serious moment, and it's a moment that can either will be um, 
followed by an enormous amount of fear or by a great deal of repose and tranquility. And you want the second. And what follows this, Allahu Alam, that's a very big topic that inshallah we can talk about. But the moment of rebirth and qiyamah, you don't want to be among those that realize they're doomed. You don't want to be among those that are anxious because they're not sure. You really want to be as some part of the third group, al-muqarrabun. And that's what you aspire for. And if people had that as the, the clear object in their life, things would be so much simpler in existence because you would always ultimately that would be the bottom question the the bottom line does that make me allow me to be among the muqarrabun everything you say or do not just some things and other things but even we were talking about social media when you get in social media and you read a website what am i reading is does it allow me to be among the muqarrabun or does it put me somewhere else if it puts me someone else okay I close it if I'm gonna write something on social media is what I'm writing gonna allow me to be among the muqarrabun or somewhere else muqarrabun I do it somewhere else forget it everything everything and then life would become much simpler and and far less complicated I mean I once told a group of students where did they come from who said do I did I need to read the whole library to come to this library? Yeah, there were a group of students who once came to visit me from Stanford. And I remember someone asked me, um, did you need to read all these books? We were met in my library with, you know, thousands of books. Did you need to read all these books to come to the conclusions that you came to in life? And I took the long path and the hard path. I needed to go read thousands and thousands of books all types of philosophies to go up and down, left and right, you know, sideways and every way you can imagine. But ultimately, that's where it all led me. And <laughs> there's, the, you know, you can go the hard way or you can just go right into the realization. Okay, Jazakallah khair for another great session. Does the professor have any insights on the order in which the surahs were organized in the Quran? I always find it curious how the foundational surahs that we focus on actually come closer to the quote-unquote end of the Quran rather than at the beginning, for example. Yeah, you know, the, this is a fairly big topic. The, um, the organization of the Quran, of course, it was thoroughly systematized uh, with long before print, um, um, the way that the surahs are organized in in the uh, seem to have been systematized, especially in the Abbasid period, um, as the state itself. I, I'm I don't have any problem with saying that the you know the, uh, I, I'm talking particularly about the order of the surahs uh, and the the. The Abbasid state in particular, uh, for a variety of reasons, became vested in, and that's in part because uh, there, there were 
at the time of Harun al-Rashid, several copies circulated of the Quran that had Zorashtian and had um, uh, various mythologies from various cultures weaved into the text of the Quran. And the Abbasid state went after these copies of the Quran with a vigilance, but a part of adopting Dar al-Hikmah and streamlining the process of copying the Quran was that the order of the Quran that we have today became the uh, order we see most often. Now, there, there is a, a bigger topic as to whether the exact order that we have today is the order that existed in the pre-Abbasid period. And here the picture gets a bit more complicated. Um, we do have copies of the Quran where the earlier revelations, the Surah Shur were placed first. And Surah Al-Baqarah and Al-Umran and Nisa were placed at the, towards the end. We have copies of the Quran where the longer surah are, are placed but with more systematic rigor. So if you notice the current copy of the Quran, overall the longer surah are placed first but not always. So there are some exceptions to that rule. Um, so earlier copies of the Quran we do find um, variations in the order from longer to shorter uh, than the than the printed copy that we have today. Um, was there a theological order? What I've read, and that's something that deserves more investigation and more research. But what I've read is that some argued that the later verses the where that if you um, that the in order to underscore that the later verses were as critical as the earlier verses, the verses that were revealed in Medina, the latest forms of revelation was in some um, according to some jurists, that they also preserved what abrogated which. So the latest verses are the ones that abrogated the earlier verses. So it made sense to put the later verses first. So Surah Al-Baqarah and Al-Umran and An-Nisa and so on would be put first because they're the longest and the latest and if you adopt the school of Nasikh and Mansukh, so then the, the verses, the abrogated earlier verses would come first in structurally in the order of the Quran. Um, I've read some that said that the way that the current copy of the Quran was ordered was divinely inspired and that the Prophet is the one that's instructed. However, the evidence for that is, it wasn't convincing. I mean, it was isolated reports here and there. I tend to 
believe that we should not reopen the issue of the way that the Quran is organized because already as Muslims we have so many issues we don't need to reopen issues that will divide us that will generate endless debates and and will arouse enormous amounts of passion and and feelings and so on uh, if you know we don't need to deconstruct our tradition more than we've already deconstructed it however while preserving while respecting history and respecting what our forefathers uh, and foremothers did in having the Quran organized the way it's organized, it is incumbent upon us to study the Quran with an eye and an understanding for the order of revelation. And the reason that I think the order of revelation is so critical is that I believe, and Allah knows best, but I believe that the earlier verse revelation, if you study, most of the revelation is Meccan, as we know. Most of the Quran is Meccan. But the Meccan verses established constitutional principles that were then applied in a variety of ways in the Medinian period. It doesn't mean that the Medinian verses are less important and it doesn't mean they're abrogated or anything like that. But it means that we, whenever you study anything, you must be clear about what are foundational principles and what are principles of application and what are actual applications, not principles of application, but so what are principle, foundational constitutional principles, what are procedural principles, and what are actual applications, actual case laws. And I think that is very critical to understanding in, in, in the way that I interpret Ummul Kitab and Al Mutashabih Min Kitab. And that's something we can get into, inshallah, uh, if we get into the, inshallah, the project of going through the entire surah of the Quran. Because the way we deal right now with the Quran in the, this piecemeal fashion, we end up doing things like putting a great amount of emphasis on um, on ancillary or auxiliary auxiliary or uh, derivative issues while missing out on foundational issues. So when I look at Muslim societies and I see that, you know, you're sitting there and you're you're talking, for instance, about uh, rules that are very particular and very specific, while your society is plagued by poverty 
and tons of orphans. And I mean, I had an, an experience I'll tell you about really quickly. I know of a group of people that went to Egypt and they had a very simple project. They were collecting donations to create organizations that would take go to street children. Street children, are, you know, their, their population is enormous in Egypt. And they, they're parentless. Most of them are orphans. And they're sexually abused, severely physically and sexually abused by all elements in society. It is not at all unusual to have street children who are 12 years old or 13 years old becoming pregnant and give birth. And, you know, their children are, are, are in the streets. I mean, it's a huge problem. So these people were, you know, gathering money from Muslims all around the world. And they went and they created these civic civil societies to take care of street children, to feed them, clothe them, educate them to teach them something what was okay so what was remarkable is amnid dawla security forces ended up closing down confiscating the money arresting everyone but what the part that gave me serious pause was the 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 the, the attitude of al-azhar the attitude of wazarat al-awqaf and the attitude of dar al-ifta all three institutions basically had the attitude like, well, it's none of your business. It's, that's the government's problem. Why are you meddling? What type of Islam is that? What type of Quranic understanding is that? I mean, <laughs> that should give you serious pause of the type of Islam we have. When you're sitting with these you know, famous Azhari sheikhs, who have memorized the Quran, have spent their life specializing in this and that, and basically t they tell you, well, you know, the Wazarat al-Awqaf should take, they, they, if the, you know, you sh they should have written a petition to Zarat al-Awqaf and then let Wazarat al-Awqaf do whatever it wants. In other words, as Muslims, they shouldn't have meddled. Then you really doubt whether they have even the most basic relationship with the Quran. These experiences, I have to admit, have been very transformative in my life. Uh, because you travel all around the Muslim world, and I wish I went to a single Muslim country that didn't have street children everywhere, and didn't have abject poverty everywhere, and didn't have vast differences between the classes and the fact that the people that you would think understand the Quran the most and would be the most militant about it, you find them, eh, you know, well, as long as they pay their zakah, it's okay. Uh, no, no. That's not Islam. This question we actually got a while ago, which pertains to what you were just talking about with the surahs. Um, is there a difference between the morality of laws revealed in the Meccan verses and the morality of laws stated in the Medinian verses? This is a dichotomy that many Islamophobes use. Yeah, well, 
I'm I'm not sure about the Islamophobes part because the Islamophobes um, <laughs> they they try to argue that oh look in the Mecca period Islam had morals and principles and then in the Medina period it had basically a Machiavellian attitude and it betrayed all its principles and so on and you know again if we funded organizations uh, of islamic knowledge not islamic propaganda but islamic knowledge um that would have been very easy to respond to because that's i mean it's through an, it, it it rides on the coattails of what a lot of orientalist scholars said so people like montgomery watt said that the Meccan verses were inspired by a sense of idealism and that the Medinian verses, Muhammad lost his, his idealism and lost his inspiration and that the Medinian verses are less eloquent and less beautiful uh, than the Meccan verses. Um, and that, that's an old Orientalist argument. And again, I mean, I taught, when I taught a course on the Quran at the University of Texas, I used to teach courses on the Quran at the University of Texas, um, we would spend time, you know, reading all the Orientalist stuff on the, these types of arguments, and they're, I mean, I don't, they're silly. They're, they're, and they're just, there's so many problems with them. Anyway. But the Islamophobes basically read this Orientalist literature by people like Watt and Gibb and so on, and then riding on the coattail of these arguments, they then made the arguments more crass, more vulgar, and said, you know, while the Orientalists would say Muhammad lost his inspiration, the Islamophobes say Muhammad ba basically betrayed his principles and became make a villain and so on. Now, sadly, because again, Muslims ha have been, no question, victimized by Islamophobia in, in, in a way that is undeniable. Because I hear Muslims, even in places, in Muslim countries, in the Emirat, in Saudi, in Egypt, in in Morocco, and I mean, say things about the Meccan verses and Medinian verses. So I've heard professors tell me, well, you know, isn't it true that the Medinian verses are not as beautiful as the Meccan verses? If you actually know Arabic and you studied Arabic, no educated human being can say that. I mean, have you read Surah Al-Nur? Have you? I mean, whenever you had Medinian revelation about law, and this is part of that larger project, never does the Quran talk about law without reminding you, in a portion of the Medinian Surah, that literally equates the beauty of the Meccan revelation as if Allah is telling you, look, I am the same God that is talking about these nuts and bolts of law. Look, I can shift gears and say, 
ayat al-kursi in the right in surah al-baqarah at the end of surah al-baqarah you get ayat al-kursi a profoundly beautiful revelation like the, the that sounds like meccan i mean if we weren't didn't have all these reports that tell us that ayat al-kursi is part of surah al-baqarah we would think it's a meccan revelation or in surah al-nur the, the the Ayatul Nur or Ayatul Nur as they're known again pr- profoundly sound like their Meccan revelation so you know we often repeat what Islamophobes say like parrots like parrots or even those group of people who said oh the Meccan verses abrogated the Medinian verses the the Badinian verses are abrogated or they're no longer relevant. I, I don't know. I mean, that would take me a long time. I don't know where even to start with that. It's just thoroughly problematic and it arises from a lazy, unengaged attitude with the Quran. The ethics are the same. The ethics of the Meccan verses and the ethics of the Medinian verses are the same. They're the same ethical principles. The major difference is that in Medina you had ethics of process and procedure which were not emphasized in the Meccan period. Moreover, in the Medina period you had the actual laws that approximated or attempted or as a matter of trajectory aspired to achieve the ethics established in the Meccan period. So for instance, I'll give you just a very simple example. When the Meccan verses tells us what, what, what instructs us not to eat, not to unlawfully or unethically cheat people of their inheritance. Then in Medina came the revelation that specified shares of inheritance to specific people. If you looked at the ayat that specified shares of inheritance in the Medina period, you can say they are in fulfillment of the aspirational verses of the Mecca period, either in partial fulfillment or in complete fulfillment, but in some degree or another in fulfillment. The Meccan verses tell, tell us to take care of the wayfarer and the prisoners of war. We don't get actual specific instructions about prisoners of war until the Medina period. A contradiction? No. But either a complete fulfillment or a partial fulfillment. It is incumbent upon us, students of the Quran, to then study what is a a foundational principle, what is a procedural principle, what is an application, an example of how to apply the principle either in complete fulfillment or in partial fulfillment of the foundational principle. And that's how 
that structure gels together in, in, in a one symphonic performance. It all complements one another. The, 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 none of it, none of it is whimsical. But all of the Quran speaks to us in a unified voice. You know, it's like, I, I, I used to, when I had my hearing, I would listen to classical music all the time. And the people that would really irritate me would people that, you know, come and they like the first movement or the second movement or the third movement of a symphony or even not even a full movement. They come and listen to a little part and then they comment about the entire symphony. No, no a symphony is a symphony. It's all the movements. You have to listen from beginning to end and you can't claim to have any understanding of any particular symphony unless you've listened to it from beginning to end. That's one of the things that I really miss after my ears. It's, uh, the, anyway, and so is the Quran. It's an entire performance and you either understand it, you, you have a complete comprehension of it or you're going to misapply it and misunderstand it. Chief, can you grab the, thank you. How are you doing? I'm okay. Okay, so keep going or do you need a break? Well, we're gonna break at some point from Maghara break. Yeah, I mean it's already 8.15, so I don't think you should go as late as you normally do. Okay, well, we'll go maybe another half hour? Okay, all right, that's good. So we'll try to go another half an hour, inshallah. The, okay. the people need like a, a short break or are okay. they okay? can take one, we don't need Oh, they, they're yeah, they're, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, they <laughs> you guys are allowed to take a break if you need to. <laughs> well, well so, several people have <laughs> taken a break yeah. in a way. Okay. Um, so we uh, we talked a little bit about missing prayers. Um, I had a question about prayers I missed as a teenager. I would go through periods of praying regularly and then periods of guiltily postponing my prayers. For example, my discipline was thrown off after menstruation or when traveling, and often I'd try to make them up. But if I'd missed too many or didn't remember how many I'd missed, I'd postpone the attempts until too many accumulated. I became more regular and disciplined at the age of 19 or 20, nearly two decades ago. I have no idea how many prayers I didn't make up. So my question is whether I should make up for them. And if so, what, what is a reasonable time frame and estimate for how many prayers to make up? Yeah, um, there is a difference of opinion about this. The the principally two schools of thought um, some that said do a rough estimate and the way that that you should the way you make up for your missed prayers is that like with every dhuhr you 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 pray another dhuhr with the intention of making up for a missed dhuhr you know, and same thing like you pray Dohr and another Dohr, Asr and another Asr, Maghrib and another Maghrib, Isha and another Isha, Fajr and another Fajr. In, 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 and so that's one school of thought. The second school of thought says that prayers that you've missed before you became Multism before you became a regularly, irregularly praying person, you asked Ghufran for you asked for forgiveness, but you don't make up. Um, 
both rely on plausible evidence, I mean reasonable evidence. Uh, one, the first school relies on the way they understand some texts and some hadiths while they don't have a specific nuts on where the Prophet tells someone make up for the prayers that you missed before you start praying uh, they rely they deduce that principle from other things while the second school relies on the fact that we don't have a specific nuts that says make up for prayers that you've missed before you became irregular and relies on the fact that for all that it's a them it's a sin whatever prayers you missed and then you just ask Allah for forgiveness um, for a long time now I think I belong to the second school and the reason I belong to the second school is that this is when it comes to prayers if Allah expected those who've missed prayers uh, before they became uh, observant. I think when it comes to issues in prayers, we, we rely on specific musus, specific texts, clear texts. And I, and I think that's a serious enough issue that Allah would have made clear or the Prophet would have made clear. That's one. The second is that um, I've seen people who have tried to make up for their past prayers and the way a prayer becomes a chore, uh, becomes a really, you know, they, they just start going up and down, just doing sujood and ruku and so on while they lose the meaning of prayer because they, they have so much to make up. Um, and Allah is, forgives all and as long as you are observant and as long as you are serious about being observant and you are sincere in asking Allah for forgiveness for what you've missed there is no reason that Allah wouldn't just forgive it um, so you know for whatever it's worth I belong to the second school and some of us I mean the other thing that I have to tell you is that you know some of us were raised because of the way we were raised we never missed prayer you know whether even before we understood what prayer was about we were always praying uh, and then some of us didn't have these types of circumstances in life you know they they might i've known people that you know didn't even learn how to pray till they were in their 20s because their parents didn't teach them and i think it, it just doesn't if allah intended for these people to make up their lost prayers allah would have made that clear uh it's not it doesn't seem fair to require those who just had the the, the good fortune of being raised in the type of uh, household that insisted on prayer for them to not have to make up these prayers while the others would be you know burdened by 20 years of missed prayers or 30 years of missed prayers or uh, which you know could end up in very absurd results um, 
I never forget there there was a guy I I knew long this was a long time ago. He was in his fifties when he started praying, and he went to a sheikh who told him that he has to make up all his lost prayers. And this poor guy never did anything but pray. I mean, he wouldn't. He didn't watch television with his family. He would literally eat very fast and. Every time I would see him, he's praying. And then finally I asked him, because first I thought he was very devout, but I started noticing that he just doesn't, his aura doesn't reflect that. His aura actually reflects a lot of um, anxiety. And and then finally I asked him, you know, I noticed that, mashallah, you pray all the time. And he said, oh, Sheikh such and such, you know, told me I have to make up all my misprayers. And I calculated them to, I don't know how many prayers. So, and, uh, you know, he wasn't asking my opinion, so I didn't say anything. Um, but that, that stayed with me. This is a question that we carried over from the last um, Q&A. So um, <clears throat> we already talked a little bit about hijab. So this is like three parts. Um, what should a woman cover during prayer? Um, for example, I've seen women praying wearing turbans on their heads but showing their necks. I also have seen women putting a hijab but praying in t-shirts. So I got confused about what characterizes proper dress during prayer. That's part one. Part two, how can we define modest clothing in concrete terms in an age in which fashion is continuously evolving? Does Islam provide any guidance on what is meant by modest clothing, or is this something left for society to define at any given moment in time? And then, um, can a woman who wears a hijab not put it on in front of her husband's brother, whether married or unmarried, if they live or stay in the same household? Many times when visiting family and doing sleepovers, women in the family end up having to cover their hair all day long until we go to sleep. And since no one is looking at the other in a sexual way, is it permissible for women in the family to take off their hijab at home but put it back on in public? Um. Okay, so the first part, without going, because I, I, I've talked about hijab and modesty in many different contexts, so I'm going to choose like the most straightforward, and I will give you my opinions without going into a long lecture about all the different schools of thought and all the different debates and so on. So just with the proviso that since this question is being asked of me, then all the rest. In prayer, there you you get um, a number of the of debates and arguments and so on about, um, but the issues are often whether the the covering of the neck the covering of the arm from the elbow to um the um the um wrist and uh, the covering of the feet and in my view showing the neck in prayer doesn't abrogate the prayer uh, showing the feet doesn't abrogate the prayer, and in my view, it is better to cover 
the arm from the elbow to the wrist. Um, so I would not pray in a t-shirt if that t-shirt shows the arm. I mean, we, we could, in a different situation and an occasion, we could go into all the evidence and all the arguments and all of that. But um, that's, um, uh, does cover, if a little bit of the hair shows, that does this abrogate or void the prayer? No. So you'll find sometimes Hajab is wearing the hijab with a little bit of the hair showing at the beginning. There is a hadith that says, if three hairs show your your prayer is invalid which is a hadith that the the wahhabis of old because who knows what wahhabis are today uh after mbs the wahhabis have woken up and decided everything is different but anyway the wahhabis of old used to used to swear by that hadith if more than three hair if three hairs or more show your prayer is null and void that hadith is very problematic it's it, it, uh, it has not been authenticated by any of the scholars of hadith it's it has many different problems and i and there is no evidence that you know when you when you see a little bit of the hair showing at the front that that voids the prayer and Allahu Alam and God knows best. Um, about modesty, the the question of modesty is again that that's one of the issues that I've talked a lot about and written a lot about. But there is no question that modesty is part intention and part perception. Is it possible for a person to be a muhajjaba and to be thoroughly immodest? Absolutely. If you've seen, if you've been to any Muslim country, and you've seen how some people wear their hijab, you see some muhajjabas. You wonder what's the point? I mean, they're 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 wearing hijab, but there is nothing remotely modest about them. Whether the way they wear makeup or the way their their clothes are, oh, that no, I don't want to get into that. Yeah, um, yeah. A, a, a Grace wrote to me a, a particularly notorious example, that, but it would get me into trouble, and I just don't want to. Yeah, um, modesty is not just what you wear, but it's conduct, and it is attitude. If you, if you're, um, you know, when the Prophet ﷺ was described as a thoroughly bashful human being, and even would be, they said he was bashful as a virgin in, in her first night, uh, when, when something would happen, his, he would, um, what's the expression in English, that when your face becomes red? He would blush. Um, that's part of modesty. That bashful, blushing attitude towards a lot of things instead of crassness and vulgarity and, you know, being proud of being in your face and, and being shameless or being not embarrassed by anything or 
that's all part of immodesty. Modesty cannot be reduced to a form of dressing. It's not a uniform. It's an entire attitude. I, I know someone who... I know more than someone, several. People who hold themselves out as very pious, in, in fact, hold themselves out as the religious scholars, quote-unquote. But they work out their all muscle and they wear tight t-shirts to show their muscles. That's not modest. You, you, you know, wanting people to admire your muscular physique is not modest. Cover it up. Be bashful. I know, okay, fine. I'll, I'll say the example that Grace actually wrote. Shall I? Uh, no? Okay, anyway, I, there are Mahajravas that do... Well, anyway. So, anyway. Yes, standards of modesty do are, are part, a matter of intent, and a part of matter of social perception. If within your society there is a social practice that is usually associated with vulgarity, then it is immodest to engage in that practice. Let me repeat that. If in your social context there is conduct that is usually associated with vulgarity, then it is immodest to engage in that conduct. So if in your society it is immodest to spit and you go around spitting, learn your society. If in your society it is immodest to go, for men to go around holding hands, learn that practice. Learn the symbolisms of your society. If in society certain physical movements are performed by immodest people, then these are the parameters socially defined. It's a matter of intention and matter of social practice. To try to disconnect modesty from a social context is completely missing the point of why the Prophet urged us to be modest. If you actually look at the conduct of the companions and look at what type of things made the Prophet blush, there were very culturally specific type of jokes that if you repeat it today, they would make no one blush. Now, what if someone induces blushing artificially just to imitate the prophet is that modest no if if it doesn't if it doesn't have the social meaning that it did so understand modesty in its full meaning because it's a moral virtue it's not a law it's a moral virtue 
And like all virtues, all virtues are impoverished and deprecated by stone-cold laws. If you reduce a virtue to a cold, stone-cold law, the virtue shrivels up and becomes meaningless. Virtues are much bigger than laws. Laws can only aspire to fulfill a virtue, but they can never become the virtue. That, that is hikmah, that is wisdom. And if you people understand that, don't ever reduce virtues to, see, to simple laws. Laws are always much bigger than virtues. So that's on the issue of modesty. Yeah, virtues are always bigger than laws. Uh, what did I say? Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Virtues are much bigger than laws, and laws are only approximations and often poor approximations of virtues. They can aspire to fulfill the virtue, but they're always incomplete and deficient. And that's why laws need constant renewal and constant re-scrutiny re and reanalyzation because laws could just completely miss the boat after a period of time. And that's what precisely Imam Shafi, when he would talk about you know laws changing with time and place, that's what these fuqaha were talking about is that laws are there to fulfill virtues. And you have to always ask, is the law fulfilling the virtue or is it missing the boat? Is it, is it now pointless? So look at the virtue of modesty and, and, and the way that it tenderizes the heart. The point is that you're not a vulgar human being. You're not a crass human being. You're not a showy human being. Now, there, you know, I see there, there is this field of, um, like, you know, fashion hijab. Some of it is very beautiful. And, and the, if the point is to show that you can wear a hijab and be a beautiful human being and be pleasing, it is society that gives it whether that is immodest or immodest. If you're wearing something very expensive, you know, with diamonds and stuff like that, that n poor people can never dream of, then it's immodest. If you're wearing something that is very tasteful and beautiful and makes it look desirable in the, heart, in the hearts and minds of people, then it's modest. And of course, a lot depends on the person who wears it. With what attitude do you wear it? Um, the third part was what? Oh, um, yeah, you know, the, the, that's the issue of in-laws. That's a law, that's a very old issue. Um, the, the problem is, is that with in-laws, like your brother-in-law, you're not, you, if you wear the hijab, then you're not supposed to wear to show your hair in front of your brother-in-law. Um, you're, but it becomes cumbersome upon women 
the, if I have met shiuch that I respect that said to women, especially this was in the context of women in Egypt where there is, is, is a serious problem with housing shortage. But it's not really a housing shortage, it's just that rich people can afford to build, to buy homes, poor people can't. So poor people would all be living together. And the women in these homes would complain that because they're forced to live with their families, with in-laws, a very long periods of time, years, uh, that they're, that the only place where they can take off the, the hijab and show their hair would be the bedroom if they have that with their husbands. Um, and that and so there are shiuch that I respect most, all the, the ones that I can think of were Azhari shiuchs, who said, fitna if you are sure there is no fitna, then you may take off the scarf and show your hair in front of your brother-in-law. But in every, but all of them would underscore that Iza because the, the Prophet ﷺ said, warned against in-laws that a lot of times there are fitna that occur between in-laws uh, when you think that it wouldn't occur. Um, and of course, you know that that's that's a, a problem it, when it happens within a family, like a brother-in-law start falling in love with uh, their sister-in-law. It destroys the family. It splinters the family apart. The situations where, unfortunately, I've seen it. Uh, you know, then the siblings are fighting, and there's betrayal, and there's heartbreak, and there's. So, alhamul maut, as the hadith says, that you know, you you have to be very cautious when in assuming that there is no fitna with an in-law. But so the bottom line is, do I agree with these Azhari sheikhs? Well, I mean, I I think there is. I'm not going to get into what I say about the hijab in general because I'm not going to talk about that. But what I'll say is, if you wear the hijab and you believe that this is what you should wear, um, if it becomes a true hardship upon you and you want to show your hair upon it at home and you are confident about the issue of fitna, uh, then, then do so and may Allah understand and forgive. Um, because the the hardship sometimes is I under, I mean I, I'm not a woman I don't wear hijab so I, but I understand from the women I talk to that the hardship could be severe. But just be careful about this this whole fitna issue, because that defeats you know if you if you suspect it, put it on again. So I have a couple of follow up questions um, from the from the YouTube. Um, could you please, um, oh, does, do males and females have the same dress code requirements for prayer? And secondly, what if um, society believes that a burqa um, is modest, but a girl in that society doesn't believe it? What is her social responsibility about it? 
Okay. No, male and female don't do not have uh, the same restrictions in prayer. Um, for, in the opinion of the majority of scholars, um, there is a non-surviving school of thought, and I say non-surviving with the following proviso is that I have met people in Moroccan and Algerian societies where men will not pray with their hair uncovered. And when I asked them why they will not pray with their hair uncovered, they said that it is haram. And that the way they were raised in their Maliki's school of thought, and in all the cases that I can think of, they were Maliki's, that's the way they were taught, is that both men and women have to cover their hair. Um, and these are rural areas that I, I had traveled in and so on. And when they said that, I remembered the opinion that did not survive in Islamic fiqh that considered the, the hair in prayer for men to be aura that men should cover their hair in prayer and consider that, but they also consider that you have to pray. Um, anyway, they, they consider that if you if you prayed without a beard and you could grow a beard, that your prayer is invalid. But anyway, that's that's another point. Um, but that's, that school of thought, as far as I know, didn't survive except in these areas that I, I've... Um, now... Having spent a lot of time in in um, uh, in Gulf countries, um, you know, you're raised in societies where part of what the way a, a man dresses is to is to cover your hair with a aqal or a ghutra or whatnot. But why the aura and men and women are different in prayer and whether that is whether that is the only possible position i mean i i don't i don't want to open up issues that i cannot close in a reasonable amount of time so i'll just tell you that the that the opinion that the prevailing opinion and the opinion of most jurists alive today and in the past is men and women have different auras that in prayer, the aura of a woman is pretty much all her body, except her wrist, her feet, her face, and arguably her neck. And that the aura of a man in prayer, two schools of thought, that in prayer it's only from the knee to the navel. The other school of thought says it is from the knee to the, be the um, what do you call that part? Um, Clavix? Is that your clavic? Clavicle. Do the clavicle, so it includes the chest. It doesn't include the arms. Um, I tend, my my own I, view of the aura of men in prayer tends to be very conservative. I will not pray in anything that doesn't cover my entire body. Why? So I won't even pray in shorts. Um... Not that I would wear shorts, but even if I did wear shorts, 
<laughs> I wouldn't pray in shorts. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pray in a t-shirt. I tend to, when I really want to pray and reach a, a blessed prayer, I cover my hair. I, I, I will disclose that. When I really want, when I do my, uh, my, my qiyam, and when I, when I do, do true ta'abud, I cover my hair. And some other time we can get into why and, and how I came about that position. But I, I'm trying to remain, you know, not scandalize you too much and not scare you all away. Um, so that's prayer. The the other was what? Um, burqa. I didn't hear it. Sorry. What if society oh, said burqa is? yeah, that issue has of course have come up in in Saudi, and you know, if you are in. Um, uh, this again, bef when Wahhabis were still Wahhabis. I don't know how Saudi is now after MBS. I, I hear some really crazy stuff. But uh, when Wahhabis were Wahhabis and uh, the issue would come up and, and we would be in places. And my advice is that if it's m modest, if that's the standard of modesty in these societies, then yes, cover your hair. Because otherwise you become a target. And that defeats the entire purpose of the way that you dress. The, the illa, the crux, the operative cause in the way that you dress is safety. It's whether you become a target. And it, it is that targeting issue that is the dawaran al that you know what, what they say that dawaran al-hukm is on that illa of safety the operative cause and so that often becomes the bottom line if you are in Saudi society now you can walk around without covering your face so there, there, there is no reason to do so. Yeah. So now it's, it's been half an hour. Okay. So shall we, shall we stop? We still have more questions, but maybe I didn't get a chance to ask you if you'd be willing to do another like session, maybe next week or something like that, or if we can talk, we can talk about later. Okay. But, um, is there any quick questions, or are all of them long? <laughs> Yeah, there, there, there's no such thing as a quick question. Um, the the uh, quickest question I have is about spaying cats. And then I have one about the prohibition of pork. And then I have one about the symbolic caliphate. Okay, symbolic caliphate is not short. <laughs> uh, Sorry, por <laughs> uh, Pork is not short, so, we have, not to, short. so we have to postpone these. Okay. So we can finish uh, on spaying cats or we can hold it. Ask spaying cats. So, I have a question that I've been trying to find an answer to for a long time. We have pet cats at home. We got a male and a female. Okay, well, you know, long and short of it is so they adopted cats. They didn't feel comfortable spaying it, spaying them. Now they have 11 cats. <laughs> so, you know where this is going. Um, so, 
should we get our cats spayed so that at least they could live a happy and healthy life? Um, is it right to do that? Um, is it allowed if I'm thinking about the well-being of the cat? So are, are we somehow, you know, like preventing a cat from living a full life by spaying them? Um, no, you're not. Uh, animals don't have a sexual preference. And animals are unable to, the uh, animals don't equate quality of life with their procreational ability. They, they, their quality of life is to be taken care of and loved. They really do respond to love and care and compassion and tenderness. Uh, I investigated this issue at length because when we adopted, we saved a lot of dogs and we've been saving dogs for as long as we've been together. Um, and so the question of spaying dogs became very pressing. Um, and after researching it, I, be I became very satisfied that there are no shari uh, no shari obstacles to spaying dogs. In fact, I or became cats. or cats. Uh, uh, in fact, I became convinced that it might be an obligation to do the spaying so that animals don't suffer. Um, because when you don't spay, the overpopulation without the institutions existing to take care of that population, um, then then it becomes a dereliction of duty by human beings. Um, the souls of animals are different than the souls of human beings. And so they, the dynamic is different. And that's why spaying, and I could give you a long philosophical answer about the differences in souls and how and all that but the the short of it is that i i am alhamdulillah at this point thoroughly convinced that there are no shari obstacles to spaying cats or dogs or any animals that would reproduce and risk being not cared not cared for and even if you're going to take care of the cats, it's better to spay them and, and provide your existing cats with good quality of life rather than some of the, the horrible things we see where, you know, people have animals and they can't take care of them or they run out of money or they get old or they die and then you have to find homes for all the animals they leave behind or, you know, all, all these tragedies which are not good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So I think that's a good place to stop. We didn't go past the five hour mark. Alhamdulillah. Last time it was very tiring. It took a long time for, you know, for the professor to recover. So I think it's good to just uh, not push it too far. Um, so thank you so much for being with us. It was wonderful again to see you. And inshallah. Um, oh, oh I, I, I have an announcement from my son. That he is a Kafir son who just prayed Asr in shorts and t-shirt. <laughs> just so you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I am defied even by my own son, <laughs> who follows his own madhab instead of following mine. But it's yeah. okay, I'll forgive. 
So anyway, may Allah bless you. Um, pray for, for the Quran project. And um, inshallah, I'll, I'll be in touch with everyone about whether we will do another Q&A session and, uh, and all of that. So, But we'll have another um, line by line tafsir at least in about a month's time. So inshallah. 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 Thank you all. Thank you for guys for coming. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.